Welcome to the Film Comment podcast. I'm Devika Girish. And I'm Clinton Krut. We're the editors of Film Comment. This week, we're reporting from Berlin, where the 2023 edition of the Berlinale is currently underway. Throughout the festival, we'll be sharing daily podcasts, dispatches, and interviews covering all the highlights of this year's selection. So follow along on the Film Comment podcast and the Film Comment letter. Choose. Hello, listeners of the Film Comment podcast. It's me again. I'm Devika Girish, and I'm back with another podcast from Berlin. We are getting to the end of the Berlin Film Festival, and I have with me here a very international crew of critics to talk about some of the things we've seen in the last couple of days. And I'll ask them to introduce themselves. Giovanni, as the veteran Film Comment podcaster at this table, why don't you start? Uh, yeah, hi. Thanks for having me. I'm Giovanni Marchini Camia, um, Berlin-based critic, uh, programmer, and co-founder of the publishing house Fireflies Press. Hi, I'm Frederick Frederick I'm a film critic from Germany. Um, I live in Berlin, and um, I run an online film magazine called Kritik.de. I've been head of program in Mannheim Heidelberg for three years, where I'm taking a year off now to um, pursue my other career as a filmmaker. I just finished my studies um, at the Berlin University of the Arts and I'm working on my first feature right now. And I used to be uh, on the board of the film critics and after 10 years, I just uh, was voted out today. So I'm going <laughs> to celebrate. With a bottle of champagne. <laughs> I'm going to celebrate right after this podcast. So excuse my good mood. Oh, <laughs> busy man, Frederick. Uh, and we have Victor. I'm Victor Guimarães. I'm a film critic, programmer, teacher from Brazil. Uh, I'm here wearing many hats. Uh, I cover the festival for Con los Ojos Abiertos, which is an Argentinian website. I'm here as part of the selection committee of the Berlin Critics Week um, for the second year. And uh, I'm scouting for the festivals I work in South America, Fic Valdivia and Fenda. Amazing. Just realized we have like a, a Berlin Critics Week kind of multi-generational roundtable here. Yeah. Devika <laughs> was there, Giovanni was there, and um, I was one of the founders. Yeah. Uh, exciting. All right. So, um, you know, one reason that I really wanted Frederick on this podcast is I wanted to hear from a German critic about some of the movies in the Berlinale. Uh, you know, it's always fun to hear from like a hometown critic because sometimes I feel like the conversations we're having in America can be so different from the ones you guys are having. And I thought a good movie to start with uh, would be Angela Shanelek's Music, which has for me, been one of the highlights so far. Uh, and Frederick, maybe you could just lead us into the movie. Tell us a little about it, like what, what it's about and what you thought of it. So you're already starting me off with a difficult cut task. Um, Angela Schanek's film Music, called Music mm. also in German, in spoken English. Mm. Um, it's a film that um, starts us off in Greece and um, leads us to Berlin like her second to last film did, um, The Traumhafte Weg, A Dream Path. Um, it's a film full of uh, references to the Oedipus yeah. um, myth and um, it's a film that's uh, very much um, constructed to allow us um, to uh, dive into references. It's a very um, Shanalecki film, but one of the more cryptic ones. Mm -hmm. um, it's quite difficult to follow the story if you're trying to um, construct a narrative thread through the images, but every image is quite charged. So there's a lot to look at, a lot to discover, and a lot to, um, I don't know, discuss probably. Yeah. Um, Giovanni, you saw it too, right? Uh, yeah, I saw it as well. Um, yeah, as uh, as Frederick mentioned, it's it's um, got strong parallels to the Dream Path. Not not only because of the location, Greece and um, and Berlin, but it's also it's it has a lot of the, the cinematography is like full of um, 
shots of uh, close-ups of hands and like very Bersonian, like the dream path was. The um, the characters, there's big jumps in time, but the characters don't seem to age. There's no... Mm. And uh, they, the, um, the performances as in the dream path, the, like, the affect is very muted. Um, I wouldn't call it Bressonian, but it's in that, in that direction. And the narrative is full of ellipses. And yeah, as, as uh, Frederick said on the first watch, a bit difficult to follow, even though it's, it's, quite, it's quite pared down. But, and um, the Oedipus myth aspect, I guess they want us to know it ahead of time because it's written on the poster yeah that, that it but i was actually i wish i hadn't known because it takes uh, several liberties with the with the myth and since it is narratively quite um a challenging film and uh you're already trying to piece together the narrative the entire time and knowing that it is that it is inspired by by oedipus kind of distracted me because I, I kept trying to compare or being like, oh, okay, so that character must be this. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And I didn't find that very fruitful. So mm. I, I would have loved to ask her what, why she felt... It could be a, a decision of the distributor to put on the poster, but I feel like maybe she has enough control that she could choose whether to put on the poster or not. But yeah, I would like to ask mm. her about that aspect, wh why she felt it would be necessary or use uh, productive for the viewer to know about that parallel but she didn't give any press so yeah you can't ask her i watched the whole film thinking that it was about the orpheus myth and i kept trying to do what you were doing but like you know with a different myth and i was like okay so he plays music and there's the you know i, I was i kept like i invested a lot in the scenes of music in the film which are many and kept thinking like it's going to have some sort of transformative power um and all that i think kind of enriched the film for me actually because i found that scenes with music which are these very intense moments in a film of flat affect. I mean, those are moments where suddenly the film seems to burst out at you after withholding uh, a lot from you. And I felt very moved by them. One of them is even in English. I mean, the, the protagonist sings in English while playing the piano. And they seem to me almost more affecting than the these bursts of plot. I mean, there are some really dramatic moments which are, I guess, very mythical in that they are deaths of various kinds, um, which I, I didn't quite know what to make of those, but these scenes of music and the way that they were rupturing her extremely rigorous compositions, which are so pleasing to look at, even though they are so rigorous. I mean, some people might call them clinical, but I found them just so, they just give you so much to look at and contemplate. Um, but yeah, I, I just wanted to say that I actually don't know how it aligns with Oedipus either. I couldn't, like, later while thinking about it, I couldn't really map uh, points very clearly beyond some kind of more basic things but I did watch the whole film thinking it was about a different myth so <laughs> I didn't know anything about the Oedipus myth about this film I don't usually look at posters or synopsis before so I try to like uh, go to a movie in a festival without m much information so I didn't know that I'm learning it now <laughs> um, I love that we me, all have these different levels of information about yeah, this film <laughs> I, mean, I, I wasn't uh, like uh, following very much like trying to find references about the film I was just uh, for me it was like uh, an opera made out of whispers or something mm. and uh, or if a melodrama but a dry one without tears <laughs> but with cough maybe <laughs> I like uh, that <laughs> these were like I mean this, for me this film was like uh, the biggest experience I had here mm. with new films in the Berlinale uh, the most loving one um, at one point uh, one of the music scenes I was like breathing along with this film which is uh breathing in its, in its own rhythm something that almost never happens with me like mm -hmm. with contemporary films and this film made me do that like put my body in a certain um, rhythm and at some point I was I burst out in crying I was crying mm. like a baby uh, in one of the music scenes mm. actually and I was like oh my god this is so beautiful I, I just cried like a stream of tears fell down uh, from my eyes 
and I think it's it's that like uh, it's uh, it's for me it's like uh, the best film the the real film that I've seen here mm. at the competition and at the other sections as well. Frederick, did you? What was your sort of uh, emotional experience of the film? Again, I feel like there's such a diversity of just viewing experiences we're expressing here. Um, it was actually changing uh, throughout the film. Yeah. I was very much connecting with it in the in the beginning, and then less and less, uh, especially in the Berlin part. I was pretty lost. There's uh, there's a big um, time gap, and um, there's also a different mode of um, uh, directing, I think. Um, the film becomes more and more thea uh, theatrical, um, which also happens through the actors, through the choice of actors. She's working with mainly French cast, but also a little bit um, German cast, people we've seen before. And I have the feeling um, I could best connect with the film in, in the in the beginning and when it wasn't so charged already. Because for me, the more information layers kept um, piling up the more I grew distant which doesn't mean it's a bad experience but more of an more of an intellectual one and less of an uh, emotional one which for example the dream path was quite different for me it was much more emotional but also because for one hand the narrative is stronger and um, another thing is that it's much longer and much more intense in the imagery I have here the feeling that we're working okay there's the Brissonian aspect but there's also a lot of um, uh, very wide uh, landscapes and where we're experiences uh, experiencing this um, Greek kind of desert and um, there's a lot of um, yeah a lot of uh, distance already in the film which mm. is marked and um, like a literal distance too yeah. yeah there are a lot of distances within the film yeah and um, yeah so I'm uh, uh, I'm for sure um, Lacking a second viewing, um, which uh, with Angela Schanelek is not surprising. Her, her 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 last film was actually quite the opposite. Um, for those who have um, uh, seen, um, uh, I was at home, but thank you for the English title. Um, and um, and here we're again more in this puzzle kind of. Um, uh, logic which uh, which she has found for herself which is only one of the many aspects of Angela Schanleck's work um, which um, is so important for her that she's really refusing to talk about the work and for those who have experienced um, press conferences with her it's actually a very um, logical consequence of um, uh, hating to talk about your own work to just stopping doing it and I think it's fine I, it's her choice yeah. to do it she's doing it kind of in a in a way that she's um, looking madly at you. How can you even um, want to talk with me? Um, uh, I was at the premiere and um, uh, it was a bit of a confused situation because um, nobody really uh, no, uh, knew what to do now with her on stage, and she stormed off. <laughs> and um, I think Legend, that's kind frankly. of um, uh, it's it's part of this. Um, move of um, Angela Schanleck that she has that you have to deserve her work mm. and she lets you know it. <laughs> uh, well, she actually did do a press conference. That's the one bit of press that she did uh -huh. do. And she was in a much better, kinder mood than uh, the other press conferences I've seen. I mean, the, the last press conference in Berlin a few years ago has become a bit legendary because of um, yeah the way she answered. But no, she was actually quite forthcoming. As in she was very curt? I, I wasn't here for that um, one. Do you remember what was the deal? Was it with Rudelga Suxland? You, you mean uh, last year? Uh, you mean with her last film? Yeah, it was especially that she um, uh, she told she, she told someone in the audience off um, yeah. for asking a question and for um, the way they were interpreting the the mm. work. Yeah. yeah. No. Whereas here, someone I, I I don't know if it's a spoiler. I mean. Of the Oedipus myth, there is yeah. a, a woman suicide, yeah, and and it's you know she in the press conference she spoke of like how yeah the the the, the character discovers that she's uh, the mother and therefore she mm -hmm. commits suicide, and then a journalist got up and was like, oh well, you say it's the mother, I'm surprised because I thought you 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 left that open, and she kind of started laughing and was like, well. Yeah, no, for me, it's clear that it's the mother, but I did leave it open. <laughs> oh, okay, yeah. I 
that makes sense to me. Um, well, I, I'm wondering if we can talk about another filmmaker who is uh, famous for not, uh, you know, loving press and, and has grown more and more tight-lipped about his own work, uh, which has also gro grown more and more spare, and that is Hong Sang-soo, who unsurprisingly has another film and will probably have another film in like two months. Uh, but I saw the film this morning, In Water, and... You know, the, the immediate thing about it is that most of it is out of focus. So Victor saw me after he saw the film yesterday and he said, guys, was it supposed to be out of focus or did I just go to some fucked up screening? Uh, but Giovanni, maybe you want to tell us about this one. Um, sure. Yeah, the out of focus thing is quite wild. <laughs> it was another thing that I wish hadn't been revealed before the film because I, th I felt like maybe it could have turned into one of those legendary things you know like you hear about epitrapone that apparently people halfway through tropical melody ran to the projection <laughs> to tell them that they had messed up the reels or something i don't know maybe we could have built some sort of rumor like that yeah. for here. but i feel like most people went in there was a big thing on twitter about being uh, out yeah, of focus yeah. but the out of focus thing it's it's really extreme yeah it's it's really out of focus but it's for me it worked so well and i feel a bit I don't know, I feel a bit silly talking about this film because I feel like I will sound like someone who's drank the Kool-Aid. <laughs> drank the soju, yeah. Because I think the people who don't like the film are saying, like, Hong Sang-soo is really taking the piss now. Like, mm. he's, he's, he's mocking us. And for me, it's not true. I think he's taken <laughs> this direction that he's been going in and he's gone several steps further. Basically, his films have been getting more and more back to the essence he's been stripping them of as much as he can and now this this out of focus is is a step further and i mean apart from the fact that it's really beautiful to look at in some uh, some parts and he talks very often about his um if he's asked about his main influences, he always brings up Cezanne mm -hmm. and painting, and uh, th this is very clearly influenced by painting. And so, and this narrative is as as bare as he's made them. It's mm -hmm. uh, three people go to is it an island or is it a seaside? It's an, on an island. Yeah, three people. Isle of Rocks. Yeah. yeah, a director, a cinematographer, and an actress go to an island to shoot a film. They have a couple meals, have some bickery conversations, and then they quickly shoot a, a, a film. And it's like, it's meta again. And yeah, no, but it's, to me, it was really amazing how by the second half, even though there is such few elements, it becomes super emotional. The director is, feels like this really quietly desperate person and it ends, I don't want to ruin the ending, yeah. but it has this really beautiful, absolutely devastating ending. And when you when you talk about the emotional aspect of Shanelek, I have to say, Shanelek's film I thought was beautiful, but intellectually, I'm more on Frederick's side. It did not hit me emotionally, whereas the Hong Sang Su left me really emotional. Mm. It was, yeah, really beautiful. Victor? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm kind of feeling happy that um, I don't read information before because <laughs> I didn't know <laughs> about the autofocus yeah. situation. And for, for a moment, I thought it would be, uh, it could be a problem of the projection. But then the, um, the subtitles were in focus. So yeah. I thought, oh, this is meant to be. I was just checking with you <laughs> guys later. Um, but then uh, for me, this experience of the autofocus was really great mm -hmm. because um, there's different degrees of, uh, of the, the, the losing of focus in the mm -hmm. film this is really it gets it the film denser in sometimes um mm. in so at some point uh and this uh and for for a moment i was like fearing that hong sang so he, he would never do that but i was feeling oh, oh come on don't do like uh, javier Dolan mummy when the character opens the the window and the film changes its aspect ratio <laughs> I was like, oh my, oh my One God! One of the this great cinematic so moments that uh, Victor is not um, uh, not appreciating to oh. its true value. <laughs> yes, uh, I was. I was here. laughing in the in the cinema when he did that. And I, was I was clapping. Okay, <laughs> we, we definitely really disagree. A, a range of, we have a uh, heated table. That's yeah. <laughs> that's that's amazing. And for me, this is like so. Um, I mean, to do it in a very simple way. Um, 
uh, attaching narrative motive to visuality mm. and Hong Sang-soo would never do that so I was so glad that the film went out of focus all the time and um, I was yeah uh, Giovanni mentioned painting I, I didn't think about that but it's obviously yes that's a lot of um, uh, Cezanne there mm. uh, yes and I was for me it was a very visual uh, challenging experience I was just telling a friend that with Hong Sang So I mean in Brazil you can't just uh, wait for wait for this film to go to the movies because a lot of films don't go to the mm. movies so you definitely have to see them at, them at home like mm. through piracy so I just I was just telling a friend that oh no this one it's not usual with Hong Kong Su, but this one please watch it in a, in yeah. a movie theater because if you watch it at home it will ruin the experience and for me it was amazing and yeah the emotional part for me is like um, I always have the sense that in Hong Kong Su's films people are talking um, but they're hiding their feelings right all the time mm. their their feelings are much bigger than what they can express in words and um, the three characters for me are, they have like hidden feelings all the time and they can't express. Usually in Hong Sang So, that expression comes with soju, right? They they drink yeah. and then they burst out of uh, yeah. talking and something happens after the, the drinking. But in this one, it doesn't. Mm. It's, it's some, in somehow is a more um, uh, kind quietly desperate film you know mm. so that that moved me a lot yeah. uh, that the the explosion didn't come in this yeah. film frederick did you see it yeah i did um so i was at the premiere where the um uh where the frederick just casually dropping every time that he was at the premiere yeah. the rest of us were plebs at the press screening i don't know it was <laughs> the first screening that popped up in my app um so i booked it um <laughs> Um, and um, they they told about the fact that they shot it in six days, and I think um, it's one of the um, not so hidden secrets of Hong Sang So, of course, that he does films very quickly and um, out of whims. And I think it's um, part of the fun nature of his cinema that he can do very elaborate things, and also some things that are maybe just a short idea, and mm. then um, uh, and then let's see where it leads. And that's why I'm. I'm a fan of Hong Sang-soo and I see most of the films, but sometimes I don't get to because they're so quick to follow uh, yeah. one another. Um, this one was one that um, I connected with less than others, especially because I love it when it gets very complex in the simplicity. And here I had the feeling it was simple in the simplicity, which is still enjoyable and I had no problem watching yeah. it. But um, the out-of-focus was not... Um, not in so many layers and I also had the impression that the um, what I love is observing in his cinema observing the actors and the small moments which of course you can do less so in this way so yeah. you're forced to much more um, look for the grander schemes and the grander schemes were not so fascinating in this um, yeah. uh, in this construction well he li always likes to work with repetitions and he does so here too yeah. but um, they don't lead quite as deep as um, they can in other films yeah i mean i actually i kind of agree with all of you um i agree with you frederick i found it way more simple than even the last film walk up which is also a very small sparely made film but it it harkens back to you know the more complex narratives uh like of a few years ago it's a film in three parts with three different iterations and i was Hoping for something like that because I, I liked Walk Up actually a lot more than some of the films before that because I just love the structural experiments of Hong. And on the one hand, I found this sort of slight, you know, which always feels like a bad word to use with Hong. It's, you know, I, I don't even mean that pejoratively, but it is a very small film. But somehow emotionally, I found it way more raw than, you know, the recent films. And something about... The blurriness added to that. Uh, I didn't at any point find it disturbing or annoying. You know, I expected to be kind of like feeling a little off base, but just there was a softness to it. The, the blurriness like made all the, it just made all the, blurred all the edges of everything. And there was this very soft kind of uh, aspect to the film. And the other thing is, you know, in the last few films, Hong has been 
really commenting on mortality very strongly. And, you know, there isn't as much drinking in this film. He has said that he doesn't drink. He's given up drinking and that has affected how he makes the films. He's given up drinking due to health issues. And the last few films all touch upon mortality. And even though this film doesn't have like old characters or characters nearing or sick or old characters nearing their death, like some of the previous films, I see that very much, this idea of what life means, what, what it means to live as, a, as an artist, what it all amounts to. And, uh, and you know, the novelist film ends with an amazing sort of moment of documentary that is a really kind of bare expression of love from Hong Sang Soo. It's a love letter. Yeah, One it, of the it best is. ever filmed. And uh, I felt that that was here too, again, not in such a direct way, but love is clearly a very big theme uh, as well in this film. And that's the ending that you were referencing, Giovanni. Uh, there's some music there. Again, I won't be too specific that references that kind of called upon this idea of love and mortality and kind of this question of what does life amount to. So that, you know, was very touching. Uh, it's also watch. a very vulnerable film and I had the feeling that this decision of making parts very much out of focus and some even more um, or less um, out of focus um, really asks you asks of you as a spectator of a stronger work or stronger kind of um, yeah um, attachment which um, also connects with this lead character who's trying to make a film and is not very sure of himself on the contrary doesn't quite know what the film is going to be like and there's uh, yeah something very cute about it yeah and it enhances the mysteries of the each character right the the out of focus situation yeah, yeah. Because I couldn't even, I mean, there are some fo scenes in focus, but I just, I couldn't even get a handle on what they all looked like. I mean, sometimes it was confusing, the two men, mm -hmm. especially towards the end. Yeah, there is, they're very, it feels very elusive. Yeah, no, it seemed, to me, it seemed like he was kind of challenging himself. Like, it's true that it's a less complex uh, structure, but I feel like he tried to make the most elemental and the most emotional film i feel like it was kind of it made me think of derek jarman's blue you know like how far can you push this um but yeah. and also the, the fact that the blurriness is not annoying and stuff it's just that he managed to make some really beautiful compositions yeah. the, like he, the way he works with color blocks you know there's that shot there's a shot where i mean he must have found that along the street there's these rainbow i don't know if it's a fence or a wall that's um has a rainbow color to it but it works so well within that that type of shot yeah you're listening to the film comment podcast sign up today for the film comment letter it's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about a film, I think... Giovanni, Frederick, and I have seen uh, Mal Viver or Bad Living. Which one? I always make that's mix the up. that's the one in competition. In competition, okay. And the reason Giovanni is asking that is because there are two films by the same director, Joao Canijo, um, and they're kind of supposed to be. So the word in the description is actually reverse shot. So the second one, Viver Mal, is described as a reverse shot of the first one, Mal Viver, but. As Giovanni was saying, that's I don't think the right word because how it works is that the first one is about this uh, hotel in in near Porto in Portugal, managed by a family, a, a kind of a group of women, uh, this intergenerational group. So there's a grandmother, you know, or or there's a woman, her daughters, her granddaughter. They all have kind of fucked up dynamics between them, resentments, cruelties. One of the mothers abandoned her now adult daughter, I think, when she was younger, or there was some kind of separation. She's come back. Um, and the, you're following their story, but you see on the sidelines the lives of the guests, like what the guests are doing. Uh, you kind of hear their conversations, or you see uh, kind of them passing through the hallways, things like that. And then the second movie actually follows the stories of the guests so they become the protagonists and 
this family then becomes a sort of side characters who you see passing by. And the reason I thought of this film while you were talking about the Hong, Giovanni, is one of the things that works about this, this film, and I think uh, are these films, and I think there is quite a bit that doesn't work, but one thing that I think undeniably works is that they look beautiful. Mm. They are filmed by the cinematographer Leonor Tellis, who is also a filmmaker. I There's a film of hers, I think, from... 2016 called Terra Firma, no, Terra Franca, a film of hers from 2016 called Terra Franca or Ashore that I really loved. And so I was um, delighted to see her name. And it's the compositions are, I guess, sort of like stately and and uh, there's a lot of geometric shots of the outside of the hotel and you see kind of the windows like laid out and then you see some, you know, little Every window has a different kind of a silhouette doing something different. So you get a sense of this like multiple stories happening simultaneously. Uh, but also the shots of the interiors are just so lavish and rich. And this is a very somber film. And there's the cinematography is also like that to some extent. But it just feels so there's it, it's very material. And I don't know, the word lavish kept coming to my mind. It's It's just very rich. And even when the film was quite boring for me, especially the first one. Malviver is very monotonous and also miserable. I mean, all the characters are really cruel to each other and just sad. Uh, the cinematogra cinematography kept me watching, actually. It was just quite... It, many shots were painter-like and made me want to keep gazing at them. Yeah, the cinematography actually changes a fair bit between the two films. In the family film, and the film about the family, it's much more distant, the shot. They're much more, they're much longer shots. Generally, the film is much more theatrical, also in the, the staging and the blocking. Whereas the, the second film, which um, follows three sets of guests, there you have a, a lot more close-ups and also conversations are filmed from uh, different camera angles, which doesn't really happen in the first film. So, and what you say about the hotel is, yeah, the hotel is gorgeous, but I have to say that I found it was a bit overdone like this aspect of the hotel is a character like you really have these shots as you say like because it's such a beautiful modernist building like it really like accentuates every every symmetry every line every reflection and uh yeah i don't know i have to say that the first film really grated me I, as you say they're cruel but it's like as if someone had watched like a bergman film and was like i'm gonna i'm gonna write dialogues like that and that's all they do it's all recriminations but they're really yeah. they're really dull like at one point the daughter's like oh, you know once i drew a horse and you didn't appreciate my horse drawing enough and i don't know these kind of things really bothered me and mothers screaming at their daughters i hate you you're you're an awful yeah. child i mean there's only there's a limit to how much you can take that and the, <laughs> and the grandmother especially is just beyond awful to her daughter yeah. like it's, it doesn't make any sense and their misery doesn't have any sort of context other than the fact that they're bourgeois like that's mm. that's the only aspect you learn because it's this um, microcosm this hotel there is no outside there is no I, I read an interview where the guy was trying to like talk about the Portuguese dictatorship and the effects that had, and perhaps, but I don't. <laughs> I, like that seems like a very no, generous thread. I, I, I may be missing something, but I didn't sense any political or historical context, at least in the first mm. film, at all, or even contemporary context. I mean, there is nothing outside of family mm. in the first film. Um, the second film, I mean, those. There, the characters' occupations and lives kind of come into the plot. Um, anyway, maybe Frederick, you want to say more about that? No, I, I just think that's actually what the film is very conceptual, and the two films as an entity are very conceptual, and it's the fun of them is that, mm. um, is how they relate to each other. So for me, the best part about the first film was starting to watch the second one. Um, <laughs> and um, This is very accurate. And yeah. actually it was like um, a breath of fresh air because all of a sudden you get a new perspective and you see how this relates and you're starting to fill in the blanks. You see how the second film is filling in the blanks of the first one. 
and that's actually an an interesting experience yeah. but more so because you're like oh there's so much um that the film is always keeping in the off always keeping in out, out of frame yeah. and i think that's also the way the film deals with political issues but with many other things too yeah. that it's a play on not putting it then in, in the frame um. and um for me um Uh, a big issue that's very personal maybe um i react um badly to um overacting and um uh many people i think don't don't mind that especially yeah. since american cinema is so much about overacting uh, i call it um acting with a big a like for yeah, you yeah, know yeah. oscar acting <laughs> and in this film there's not only oscar acting it's like um galactic acting um, <laughs> and i i think that's um also in these beautiful shots it's always difficult because it's so much about nuances in these um you know long shots yeah long shot aesthetic is about um you know small movements and here the acting um is quite the contrary so yeah. there's something off with it i agree with you that the somehow the visual style of the film and the actual content and acting and performances seem to be disconnected like the style is going for a kind of conceptual rigor that the actual story lacks um and you know this what you said is actually quite interesting frederick that the whole idea of the film is what is at the periphery and what do we not see when we're focusing on on certain things maybe when we're focusing on these bourgeois kind of uh you know inward family things um but there are a lot of films that have done that sort of thing better and have done that while also you know the if the film's only point is like hey look what you're missing uh you know what i am actually looking at while i'm missing something else can also be interesting no i mean if it is interesting then it's like more of a critique of of obliviousness and i was thinking like uh, tranke lauquen the argentinian film from last year i mean it's a very different kind of film but it has a little bit of like overlapping stories that um open up side plots a little bit and hong sang soo has done this too right i mean we were just talking about hong like reiterations or different stories that again uh tell us what we maybe didn't notice the first time and this film just lacks a sense of play like the conceit is very interesting i just wish that there was more yeah just more of a that that the director was having more fun with that conceit and i wish there there felt more to it formally than that well that's that's my issue with how the two films interact because what you guys say about the periphery is absolutely true but then when you see the other like he fills in all the blanks and that one of the there's a few moments in the first film that i find strong and one of them for example is this moment where you see the the cook who is a kind of a minor character she's there she's crying and you can hear someone having sex in the background and then uh another of the family member who's not part of the mother daughter setup but she's um i think she's on the cousin's sister she comes out and it's clear she was having sex with someone and she starts cry the other one starts crying like you you see that there's a relationship there and you don't know who she was having sex with and it's kind of a powerful moment and yeah. and it's never explained and but you understand that there's a guest and obviously yeah. the staff is sleeping with the guest and it's all there but it's really strong it made me think of uh, Lucrecia Martel probably because of the hotel and La Niña Santa but and also this aesthetic of uh periphery obliqueness yeah. yeah and that was one of the strong moments and then you watch the second film and it shows you exactly and what happened you see happened. it coming i yeah, mean you know and, exactly yeah. and you feel like i did i didn't need to for it to be spelled out and if you think about repetitions again like hong is a very good example because the repetitions are expansive like they be, they really build on each other and they're different here the repetitions The, the where the narratives intersect is completely incidental they just happen to be in the same room mm. but they don't in any way comment on each other so yeah I, i thought it was really a wasted opportunity to have all it's a very intricate structure but that then doesn't lead anywhere i feel like yeah. the more interesting aspect for me is the difference in rhythms between the two films and that's why i don't understand why he didn't make a single film that's four hours long like at, at, at risk of sounding masochistic i think that could have worked better because the two films have such opposite rhythms so because the first film as in the family film is over 48 hours and the second film is 24 hours within those 48 hours mm -hmm. you could have built a really interesting alternating rhythm uh, structure there well i think the main idea of the film is 
that separation, which is which is what I, which is my criticism too, is that if it were not these two films that are like these two puzzle pieces that ultimately fit together, this maybe wouldn't be a very interesting film. Yeah, I think also um, I, I quite enjoyed the fact that in the first part you have al almost only women you see and then in the second part you start seeing also the men. But there's no actual interesting uh, shift that comes with that. Mm. The fact that you're first with the owners, um, mostly not so much staff but a little bit staff of the hotel and then with the guests, it doesn't bring actually a very interesting perspective shift with it. Um, you just like Giovanni said you just um, fill in blanks yeah. um, it, it just um, it just adds to it and I think um, also it made I think I don't know when the concept came uh, I didn't read anything about it I, I thought maybe it was a decision later but st since there are stylistic choices probably they made this decision before um, I think um, it made them uh, in a way lazy because it, it's the um, there's a there's this concept that's overarching and kind of the elements don't need to be interesting anymore and mostly exactly. they aren't I mean the characters are pretty flat there's really not a lot of emotional investment you can give most of them are assholes are yeah. really, really I mean if mean we weren't watching yeah if we weren't watching in order to put together these pieces I don't think this would be an interesting movie to watch uh, or either of them That's yeah and then you put it together and the result is not that fascinating yeah. either Oh, well, <laughs> but, you know, I still, I like... <laughs> Onwards and upwards. <laughs> Onwards and upwards. Um, Victor, just to just to bring you in, you want to tell us about a film that you said you saw and really liked and were sort of surprised by? I think Ramona? Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, this film is surprisingly on Generation, uh, which is a somehow a section that I don't pay so, so much attention when I come here. Um, but it, for me, it, it should be like in forum or something. Mm. Um but uh, it's a... Uh, and it, for listeners, just generation is... I guess films about younger people, it's not... It was clarified that it's not films for younger audiences, but about younger younger they people. They also offer the tickets at a much lower rate so that young people will go see them. Okay. I mean, this is what they said during um, a Berlinale press conference. They're like the films that are have the perspective of younger people. But mm. anyway, Victor, go on. Yeah, it's a film from the Dominican Republic directed by Victoria Linares Villegas. Um and uh, it's a film where uh, she abandons a fiction, a fiction project about uh, a young girl who got, gets pregnant at 15. And it was supposed to be a, a fiction, uh, which, is, which would probably be something that Europe wants to see about Latin American cinema a lot, like a, a naturalist uh, fiction about poor people suffering mm. and she abandoned that idea and put her main actress uh, in search of the stories of these girls and the film breaks into a dispositive um, of mixing fiction and documentary mm. uh, in a very interesting way it's, it reminded me of uh, La Pyramide du Man by Jean Rouge um, and um, and uh, we, there's a lot of uh, joyful energy in that film. Mm. Like th at some at some extent, it makes sense. It's in generation because it's a very young film mm -hmm. in a, in in various uh, ways. But uh, for me, the most interesting thing about the film is like that. Um, it it is a film that tackles uh, an, an issue that we're all dealing with: is uh, the right to speak about others' experiences, like the standpoint uh, epistemology, if you mm. if you want to say. And that film tackles it in a very interesting way. Mm. Uh, really grabs that question and deals with it, um, and is also a, a, a response of. Um, towards what Europe wants from Latin American cinema. Hmm. And uh, yeah, it's not uh, completely accomplished. I mean, hmm. the film in the end, I guess, is a little naive about the possibility of um, uh, definitely like uh, gluing that fissure or that uh, abyss between hmm. people from a privileged class and people hmm. from the, a poor area. Uh, there's a celebration of this encounter between these women that film and these women that are filmed. Mm. Uh, for me, this, it's a little bit messianic in that mm. in that way. Um, but auto, like 
uh, auto congratulatory mm-hmm. maybe um uh but uh the, for the most part it, the film is really really dealing with um an active response for uh what we're dealing with uh like speaking from a latin american perspective is like really annoying to see some films like um answering precisely what the clichés are about latin america yeah. and what uh european programmers want to want from us it's like yeah. really really annoying to see those films uh having recognition here and then they go to brazil or to latin america and, and they don't resonate there because they, they are made for here you know yeah yeah, yeah. so yeah. we had i mean we won't get into this again but you know on yesterday's podcast we had a long discussion on ethnography in the context of samsara the luis patino film but <laughs> we're not going to relitigate that discussion um but thank you victor for that uh and frederick i was going to go to you i know you wanted to say a little bit about another german film in competition do you want to introduce it the emily, emily atf yeah um which has a very long title, which is Irgendwann werden wir uns alles erzählen, which I'm sure you all understand as Someday we'll t- tell each other everything. Uh-huh. It's a kind of title that could be a title for a podcast too, I'm, I guess. <laughs> um, and uh, the film is um, um, set in the very end of the GDR, mm. the German Democratic Republic. And... Um, it's at the moment where the state still exists, but the borders are open and um, a family is going to be reunited um, with the son, the long lost son um, who fled to the West and got rich and successful. And um, uh, the people who stayed are maybe a little bit resentful and fearful of him coming back. At the mm. same time, it's m- m- much um, in the center of the film is a love story of a young woman who looks like a model, um, falls in love with an, who is in a happy relationship and falls into love, um, in love with an older guy who's um, very much um, out of his, out of his depth, but mm. um, is very mean to her and takes her roughly. Um, especially um in bed um (laughs) so um there's a lot of um sex scenes in this film um especially violent against the woman but she wants it and um it's a film that's um very diverse in its um in its stylistic approaches it's a bit weird because it's uh kind of romanesque um very much in the um trying to make it sensual and Mm. um Uh, at the same time it's very there are a lot of um, little cliches about um, the GDR introduced and it's uh, it's a film that's uh, quite difficult to pinpoint and to put into one into one um, yeah into one place because it's so much out of what you usually get to see from German cinema Mm. Um, it's not all bad at all actually it's um, very surprising um, but it's also, um, yeah, it it lets it leaves you hanging with a lot of question marks, which I'm sure must be even m- more so for people who don't know German mm. um, culture and history. Well, um, just to wrap up, I was wondering if you could say a little more about the kind of German cinema that usually the Berlinale shows, and you know what the kind of perception is of those selections and is there a certain type of german films that the berlinale usually shows or leaves out i'm i'm just curious and what if and i know there's one big film that premieres tomorrow so we haven't seen till the end of the night by christoph hochhausler hochhausler almost yeah well the german cinema is very present at berlinale berlinale mm. gets a lot of money for showing german films and, um, and they have to meet a certain uh, quota or? i'm sure they have to meet some uh, some numbers but they're not fixed for example in competition it happens that you only have two this year you have five german films which is the highest number since the 80s i believe um Uh, which does not necessarily mean that it's a very strong year in German cinema. It can mean many things. 
um and you have german films in all the sections you have a section dedicated to german cinema which is called perspektive deutsches kino um but you also have german films in generation you have uh, films in forum and panorama and in berlinale special you have all those german films that are supposed to attract more audiences for example there's a zone und beton um sun and concrete a film which is a adaptation of um a novel by a famous comedian um in germany which is supposed to attract bigger audiences um so you have a quite big variety of german cinema in berlinale i would say in the past um it would always try to be a little bit more um on the artistic side but i feel like um uh, chatrion is also very much um trying to um especially this year with atef but you had the same thing um in the in previous years with maria schrader with a tv movie they showed this um my favorite person um was that the title um uh, ich bin dein mensch in german um which was about a robot man and a woman falling in love with her robot um the that was the last film by maria schrader which uh, who is quite famous now with um, she, she said, said yeah. um, about the weinstein um scandal and um uh i think that they are actually trying to show more diversity so not only the films that are really um pushing the boundary of artistic expression like um you'd expect from people like angela shanelek and also with shanelek they're putting a quite formally ex extreme example into the competition and they from what we know they decided this very early right after the reje rejection from khan they they uh, took the film so back in may was one of the first films confirmed for a competition which means that they are actually really willing to say yes we go for this but they are also going yes we go for this with films that are more broad and their approach like emily atef's is yeah Well, I think uh, with that wonderful little uh, summary, <laughs> we could maybe wrap this up. But before uh, we end, I was just curious, because we're at the end of the festival, what each of your like number one film has been. And I think we already know Victor's is music, because he said that. <laughs> uh, but Frederick and Giovanni, do you have a clear standout? My favorite film is Passages, um, one of the oh films God, where you Frederick. don't understand why um, uh, why Chatrion and his team uh, chose to not put it into competition, to tell it to go to Sundance and to not accept the offer to have the world premiere here in competition. So that's a big mistake, I think. Um, and um, other than that, I had a pretty good time, but with not so many standouts. Yeah, okay. I heard that Passages didn't want to give up the Sundance premiere. No? Okay. Anyway. It was big at Sundance. We we talked about it on the Sundance podcast, and I am famously not a fan, but it did do very well there. Well, I you're guess. the reason I didn't watch it, so <laughs> I, ho I hope Frederick is wrong. <laughs> yeah, you have to choose whom, whom you trust more. But well, if Frederick case, likes a Xavier Dolan shot, so maybe that's a good metric. <laughs> oh, below the belt. Yeah. <laughs> uh, my favorite would be the Hong Sang Su, like by by a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't. I think mine uh, actually is Orlando by Paul Preciado. Uh, I also love the English Analyst and the Pet Salt film, which we have talked about uh, on the podcast, but. I don't think I've had any experience and sometimes it's a matter of like the timing during the festival, the stage you're in, but I think that's the most fun I had in a movie theater at the Berlinale this year. So, oh, yeah. Sure. And Orlando was super fun. Yeah. Cool. Well, on that note, thank you so much uh, all three of you for joining me and for bearing through this discussion. And thank I will you. see you Thanks all again. Thanks for having us. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> The Film Comment podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of Film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com.